Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 2, Episode 3, The Early Settlers. Last time we chewed over the theories about the early migration period. This time we're going to look at early settlement in a bit more detail using a particular part of the world and try and illustrate a tiny wee bit about how landscape and culture shapes its very early development. Hopefully that'll give physical expression to how these theories about the early arrivals play out in the 5th and 6th centuries. Generally speaking, settlement seems to spread across England east to west, although some of the earliest Saxon settlements seem to have been in the southern Midlands around Oxford in the upper Thames Valley, and so therefore very close to our area of focus. But essentially, East Anglia and Kent seem to have settlers earliest and most heavily, and famously, the further west you go, the more Brythonic place names survive, and the later the new English place names appear. So our area is South Oxfordshire, and it is bounded by the River Thames to the south, which meanders around the southern edge of the Chiltern Hills in a big loop. Apart from it being, you know, home, I have chosen it as a sample region because South Oxfordshire has these two landscape types, lowland and upland, which gives a very interesting insight into the impact of landscape on the lives of our ancestors. I have to use modern town names just to help describe where it is. In the east, there is a town now called Henley-on-Thames, which in the 4th century is just a clearing in the woods with some wood pasture and a river crossing. The river then loops round south, around some uplands called the Chiltern Hills. I say upland rather than highland, because the Chiltern Hills are not very high, at most about 876 feet. But the scarp is steep, and the countryside behind the scarp, the dip slope as it's called, is broken and variable, and the soil up there is often less fertile, mainly heavy clay with flint, sometimes very infertile gravel. Now, if you happen to be the kind of person who likes seeing things, there are some pages on the accompanying PDF file for this series on the historyofengland.co.uk. You can go onto the Anglo-Saxon series page there for a linkadoodle, and I've also tried to attach a link to this episode in your podcatcher of choice. 
Anyway, when you go there, there are some John Speed iconic 17th century maps of the area and some pictures of South Oxfordshire I took myself. Maps of settlement patterns, place names and that sort of thing. So, south of the Thames is the modern city of Reading and as we go west along the Thames we meet the town of Wallingford and then Benson and then Dorchester. Further west still is Oxford. To the north is the town of Tame. If you don't know the area, just try to imagine basically an area of lowland in the west, upland in the east, all bounded on three sides in the south by a river. The lowland to the west is called the Oxford Plain. I will take a little more time on the topography later, but for the moment the point is that the fertile plains in the Oxfordshire Vale are very well watered and reasonably well suited for meadow to produce hay and arable for cereals. The upland of the Chiltern Hills are much less fertile and more importantly they have rather poor access to water because the stone is porous and therefore water sinks into the stone rather than running off into nice convenient rivers. The chalk hills are capped in places with clay so the inhabitants could rely on pools for their water and indeed right into the early 20th century water would need to be transported in barrels on carts in times of drought. However, the uplands are excellent for wood, for wood pasture, and in some places, arable is perfectly possible too, if less productive than down in the valley. We're not talking Pennines here, essentially, or Highland Scotland. It is also very, very pretty, but presumably that's less of a fact for your British or Anglo-Saxon farmer than it is for your modern-day commuter, although who knows? Your Anglo-Saxon was now just as capable of looking up from their work to view the beauty of the world as anyone else. There was prehistoric and Roman settlement in the area, mainly in the northwest, around the historic town of Dorchester and on the Thames. There are some very interesting hill forts at a place called Whittenham Clumps in the Synodyne Hills. And there is a mysterious Iron Age earthwork that runs up into the Chilterns from modern Wallingford. Grimm's Ditch, it's called. And they are very odd because they're obviously not defensive structures because they run up and down the hill rather than encircling the top or whatever. Maybe they're about controlling trade. Maybe they're a boundary. Who knows? Anyway, actually there's quite a deal of activity in South Oxfordshire because the so-called oldest path in Britain goes right through it, the Icknield Way. This follows the bottom of the Chiltern Scarp and goes from Swindon to Luton, or Avebury to Ivinghoe Beacon, depending on how much you're in hock to romanticism in your personal self-expression. It takes its name, the Icknield Way, from the Ikeni tribe of East Anglia because it will connect with another ancient trail when it gets to East Anglia in Norfolk, the Pedder's Way. The Romans would build up parts of the Icknield Way to make it into a proper road rather than some poxy barbarian mud track. Just as a plot spoiler, there are famous events on this road. Quite probably the great heathen army will pass along it in 878 and bury some treasure in what's called the Wallingford Horde. Also, possibly in 1066, the local lord will wave Billy the Conk through on his way to London, kingship and oppression. Just saying. Now, it seems possible that the Romans came early to the area in the invasion period. There is a structure up in the hills on what would become a Roman road. 
The road cuts off that massive loop in the Thames to the south. So it goes from the crossing in the Thames of what we've now called Henley, and then up the hills you go, down the other side and rejoin the Thames, having saved yourself miles of travel if you'd followed the loopy line of the river to the south. So, at the top of those hills, while you're on the way, there is a big earthwork, which is big yet, higher than a man's head, as it were, with a little annex to it. This looks as though the little annex could have been a little early first century legionary marching camp. When the Roman presence was firmly established in the area, the road was maybe made permanent and a much bigger camp slapped on top of it. We are, as I write, trying hard to convince historic England of this interpretation so that it can be scheduled as a historic monument. Wish us luck. One of the bits of evidence I found out just the other day that this place may be Roman is about the nearby village of Nettlebed, which place name is literally place where there's a bed of nettles. Duh. But someone called Anne Cole, with a very big brain, did a bunch of work and she found out that words using the root nettle, Old English for stinging nettle, are almost always found near major transport routes like Roman roads, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Areas of open common land, such as existed at Nettlebed, became stopping places for weary travellers, and the manure from all the horses and the animals they might have been droving, all that made the soil rich in phosphates, and if there is one thing your nettle loves more than a bag of crisps with their Scotch and American, it's a load of phosphates. Don't you just love that? Does anyone even drink Scotch and American anymore, by the way? Answers on a postcard. The point is, though, the place named Nettlebeds supports the argument that the fort is Roman near a Roman road. In the Roman period, then, the major centre that this road was going to was Dorchester, into the west of our area. It sits on the confluence of two rivers, the River Tame and the River Thames, which is pathetic, isn't it? I mean, how bad are we at naming rivers? Tame Thames. Come on! Anyway, Dorchester became a walled Roman town, surrounded on the low fertile ground by Roman farmsteads and a few suspected villas. It is at this point, incidentally, that upstream on the Thames towards Oxford, people call the river the Isis rather than the Thames, which has always confused me. It's particularly used by rowers and apparently was first used from 1350. Do not ask me why they did this, but someone out there will know. I mean, it's Oxford, for crying out loud. There'll be a paper. The Oxford Vale around these parts is basically fertile, with plains of green sand and clay soil below the scarp of the chalk hills of the Chilterns. The area around the villages of Benson and Dorchester and the Upper Thames Valley has very early evidence of Anglo-Saxon settlements, as noted before. So much so that it's been suggested that the first settlers of Wessex were not Cherditch and his bunch of adventuring warriors, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and the History of England podcast would have you believe, but instead the more gradual and peaceful settlement up here in the Oxford Plains in the late 5th and early 6th centuries. There is a bit of a theory based around a male burial that was found in the Dyke Hills, also known as the Cynodyne Hills, also known as Whitnam Clumps. Different names for the same thing. We do not like to make things easy here. Anyway, the chap they dug up 
has a mix of Germanic and Roman-style military kit, which suggests a strong military presence around Dorchester in the early 5th century of varying background. So, remember last time when we talked about a long Roman departure, a period of transition with petty lowland Romano-British kingdoms run by local tyrants, calling in barbarian military auxiliaries, Germanic federate troops, to help them maintain their little kingdoms? Well, the theory is that Dorchester was the basis of such a thing, based on this bloke. There is a bit of other evidence that suggests a late British survival, actually, so you might be interested to know, or indeed be reminded, that the old English term for a Briton was wal, from which comes the modern word Welsh. The word in fact meant foreigner, which is a bit of a cheek, given they were here first, and it later acquires the connotation of slave. Well, nearby Wallingford could well be interpreted as Ford of the Britons from its name. In addition, the Chilterns itself is a very old word formed of a pre-British Chilter, meaning high, and a Celtic Erno bit, making the Chiltern Hills mean high place in the hills. Together with the basic idea of why not establish your petty Romano-British kingdom in a defensible walled Roman town, I mean, why wouldn't you? These are straws in the wind, which suggest a Romano-British kingdom around an old Roman town calling in Germanic federate troops to keep things going, and that these Germanic folk write home to their pals, come on over, the water's lovely, and they start to come and settle in the Upper Thames Valley. Now, Dorchester will be the centre of one of the very earliest Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It looks as though Saxon burial practices were appearing as early as 450 in places like nearby Benson. You might remember Bede's Brett Walder, who claimed some sort of lordship over all the English in Britain. The first one being Alla, the second one being a bloke called Chorlin, of a tribe called the Gawissa, who acquires his status around 570, maybe. You might just recognise the name. The meaning of Gawissa is predictably obscure, but the very famous historian John Blair, who also commented on our Roman camp, by the way, suggests that maybe it translates as something like sure or reliable or maybe the trustees. I think the sense of trustees might be closer than anything to trustees in a prison, maybe like Grouty in Porridge, if you can follow a cultural reference of the 70s Britain. Those in the trust of the leader sort of thing, trusted by the leader. So maybe these folks, the Gawissa, acquire dominance as a kind of protection racket being operated in the fields of Oxfordshire on behalf of the Romano-British leadership. The Gwissa will one day become the West Saxons of Wessex, and we'll come back to that. But the Gwissa are an interesting bunch and help us extend this idea of a hybrid early identity of Germanic and Romano-British, because they trace their foundation story from the famous Cherditch. The West Saxons will forever be the Cherdingas, the people of Cherditch. And Cherditch is itself a British name. And so, QED, here we have our early mixed and confused state formation. The area becomes recognisably Anglo-Saxon, though, quite early. And yet the number of immigrants is probably really quite small, given on the amount of burials. And so, the question comes up again. 
how did they establish their cultural dominance? OK, there is the military thing, but if the numbers were so small, so as we said last time, the idea of 250,000 immigrants from across the whole piece persuading 3 million Britons to start becoming English and reading Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett seems a bit far-fetched. The answer may lie in the very numbers, though, in those very numbers, when looked at in detail at a local level. So, follow me on this. There was a substantial burial ground nearby from the period at a place called Berinsfield, and the numbers suggest a total local population at the time of about 30 to 40 people at any one time from the 5th to the 8th centuries. So, with that size of population, it wouldn't take too many hairy mercenaries with sharp swords handing out the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to convince people to give it a go and don't panic. What were these new arrivals like, then? It is significant that Bede did not talk about Anglo-Saxon territories, places, such as Mercia. He spoke instead about peoples, the Mercians. This might sound like a subtle and slightly irritating quibble, but it's important. This was a tribal society, one based on Germanic tra traditions, based on people and relationships and lordships, not land necessarily. This means that in the early days of migration, the critical unit was the warband and the kinship group. These new arrivals retained a strong sense of the family and being part of a wider kinship group. The basic social unit was the household, an extended household which included dependents such as servants where they existed. This household was led by the churl, a word cognate with churlian, to marry, and that suggests that the idea of being married was part of a process of acquiring the necessary status to establish a household. Each of these households were linked together by the concept of the kin, or kun in Old English, interlinked and intermarried families. The kinship group was a powerful ally in the success of each household and individual, so your kin provided protection for the individual. They gave support in the assembly. The law codes that emerge later show how deeply embedded the concept of kinship was within society. It was your kin that you relied on to pursue a feud, your kin you needed to pay a fine, your kin you needed to pay the war guild to avoid a feud, or to provide oath helpers. That was critical. Your reputation in society was all. The man or woman without a kinship group to support them was very vulnerable, very disadvantaged. As I mentioned last time, the Anglo-Saxons would come to view their past as one of heroic warrior leaders seizing a territory in a butch and martial idiom, the glory of conquest. This national concept implies and bred the supporting idea that just as a territory had been won, it must then be protected against threat from the outside from those who would in turn take it themselves. There will therefore emerge a strong connection between those who owned land, the churl, and public military obligations, to fight, to be taxed, to maintain fortifications. That was their responsibility as free men to defend their tribe, their responsibility towards their kin, their lord and their tribe. Because the warriors that accompanied war leaders were also free, they had independence and rights, self-expression, agency, as we might say. 
The concept of freedom is very, very important in the story of the Anglo-Saxons. It does not imply equality, necessarily. Society was already beginning to have some ranks. In this early period, those ranks and hierarchies are not complex. The new arrivals would have been part of a very flat society just starting out. But that Berensfield burial site, that already did show some signs of rank. One basic and fundamentally important division, though, was freeman and slave. The unfree might be thralls, slaves, or indeed they might be a group called coliberti, free men but who are still dependent. They might be Britons, who in Ina's law codes of the end of the 7th century will have substantially lower weirguilds or legal fine value, which is no doubt connected with their lower status. There is also a fundamental division emerging between the noble and non-noble, earlish and churlish. Already, there is the odd princely burial. Not many, but there are some. So there's one nearby at Cudston from the same period. The initial settlers of the 5th century were probably very much free farmers, banded together in either parties or with ward leaders, but all establishing small settlements without much hierarchy going on. Farmer republics, you might call them, but with the early signs of status, elites and hierarchies. More complexity in elites and hierarchies will emerge as society becomes more settled and richer, but from quite early, the signs of rank are present. Around 570, something rather dramatic happens in the archaeological record. The number of burials with goods and furnishings of various kinds falls dramatically. Now, ironically, it seems that this is not a sign of falling prosperity or something, Instead, it seems this is a sign of increasing hierarchy. As an elite begins to emerge more strongly in the 7th century, they make sure that only they are able to stand out in their burial ceremonies. So there is a minority of individuals now interred in the most dramatically extravagant ways. Elite burial magnificence that looms and towers. And while looming and towering, emphasises just what cool and important people they are compared to everyone else. As is the way of things, of course. It is difficult for the rich and powerful to get through a single day without a bit of casual looming and towering. Nonetheless, all free churls retained obligations and responsibilities as free men in exactly the same way as the war leaders they followed. So put out of your mind for the moment the medieval peasant and villain tied to the land, the ones we're used to from post-Norman times, the unfree, the Anglo-Saxon churl had no concept at this time of needing a landlord. He needed a lord, for sure, but the relationship did not rely on holding land from that lord's hand, necessarily. He did not need to be a tenant to acquire a lord. So, the land the churl held might be large or small, but it was theirs in entirety. They might owe allegiance and respect to a lord, but they were owed similar respect right back. They were legally free and could follow whomever they jolly well chose, so nurks. Lordship as a concept of personal loyalty, though, was critical, and would remain so. In episode 1.3, back in the original series back in the day, I offered you the story of Cunheada, the war leader who had trounced the king's warband, and his offer of mercy to the king's doomed warband that remained if they just switched loyalty to him. They would not, because the prince offered them wealth and life, 
and none of them would accept it, but they all kept fighting until they lay dead. Devotion and loyalty to the Lord was everything, and lordship provided a vocabulary of responsibility. The social order depended on people being vouched for. By becoming a lord's man, you became connected to a network of responsibilities that helped society maintain law and order. The lordless man, armed and accountable to no one, that was a threat to order throughout the medieval Europe and feared. To be lordless was to be essentially both vulnerable and a threat to the peace and security of society. If you had no lord, your kin should jolly well find you one and look smart about it. The relationship between the lord and his followers, though, of course, was not egalitarian, but the peasant, the churl, was themselves a lord in a small way of their household sort of thing. So, although unequal, the relationship is one of interdependence, where honour and dignity is due in both directions. Followers supported the lord, gave their loyalty, and in return the lord provided protection and gifts. The root of the word lord was chlafford, which has its root in the word for bread, chlaf. He and the lady are bread givers, the source of well-being, the source of bounty, of the essentials of life. One of the responsibilities of the churl's family was to offer the lord, lady and their household hospitality should they travel through his area, and travel the lord would because they must visit their followers in person, offer gifts, give access to the great man's ear, listen to the churl's issues. So the responsibility then is mutual and reciprocal. This right of hospitality will become a big thing, capital B, capital T, and the basis for a financial render called the Feorum. That's a plot spoiler for next time. We'll leave the Feorum for now. I freely admit here, I am going to throw more words at you. Are you ready to receive incoming? So, the Anglo-Saxon concept of loyalty then was based on the idea of commendation, the process of a man asking for the protection of a lord. If the Lord accepted this submission, they did so according to a relationship known as manridum, which sounds so much better than it does in modern translation, where the word is manrent, which sounds definitely dodgy, if not downright unsavoury. I don't want to be prurient, but let's stick with manridum. So, picture the scene, gentle listener. The man, and it would be the man, the man offering submission bows before his new lord and offers up an oath similar to this while grasping religious relics, once Christianity is here, held lightly but firmly between finger and thumb. I will be loyal and true to, Joe blogs, and love all that he loves and hate all that he hates in accordance with God's rights and secular obligations and never willingly and intentionally, in word or deed, do anything that is hurtful to him, on condition that he keep me as I deserve, and I carry out all that was in our agreement when I subjected myself to him and chose his favour. The relationship is personal. It is also, just like Fiorum, reciprocal, in this case loyalty and service in return for protection. The Lord is responsible also for the good behaviour of the men from whom he has given his commendation, and they in return must preserve his peace. 
The people in this relationship, again, are not equal. There are ranks and dominances inherent in the giving and accepting of submission, but dignity is owed to both sides. Rights and responsibilities are reciprocal. And indeed, the man offering his submission is at liberty to seek commendation from a new lord as he wishes and to withdraw his existing submission. They do not need to have a lord that lives on the same territory. They are free to seek wherever they choose. OK, are we all sorted on that? I'm going to use the phrase moral economy here. Sorry about that. The moral economy was a phrase invented by E.P. Thompson. It is a concept which describes the unwritten rules of the way that society and relationships work. It is about the order of things, the rightness of things. You might be rich and a lord. That didn't mean you could do whatever you liked. You had to live by the code, by the moral economy of your society. Here, then, is a moral economy that recognised mutual obligations. Each action had an appropriate reaction. Following the rules conferred dignity and honour on both parties, whatever their status. So in practice, hospitality or fiorum was due to the Lord, and in return, access, influence, recognition at feasts and assemblies was due to the churl. Commendation, with loyal service on one side, protection on the other, action and reaction. Call and response if it was an English country dance. Right, onward. The importance of personal allegiance is reflected in settlement place names, including our area of South Oxfordshire, which would have been based on small family groups around individual farms. The Venerable Bede tells us that the unit of land, called the Hyde, is a land of one family. Its Germanic root is hewisk, which implies a married couple. So, a Hyde farm is a common concept and presence. As families settle, they might group around an individual and their kinship group and followers. We see the memory of these people and their leader in settlements with the Inga suffix. I-N-G-A, meaning the people of. So, there is a settlement called Goring, and there is Watlington, the settlement of Watchell's people. This is a profile that occurs all over England, so... Reading, City of Dreams, originally meant the place inhabited by the people of Reda. In Sussex, there's a group of 15 places which originally had Hastingers in their name, a group of communities who thought of themselves as Hastas people. There are loads of other examples, such as a cluster of Rodingas names in Essex. So, the Hastas and the Roda of this world had carved out their little regions, their little proto-kingdoms. The suffix ton, as in the aforementioned Watlington of our areas, as in T-O-N, that means a settlement and gets added later as the population begins to grow. The modern name of Benson, then, is a good example of a place named after a leader. It seems to derive from someone called Banesa, and our first written reference to it is from 730 in the phrase Banesinga Silla Webente Regae. That is Latin for in the royal villa of Benson. And then the ton element gets added later, and the name turns into Bunsington. As it happens, most ton, ing and ing ham names are now thought to more normally indicate slightly later 8th century settlements rather than 7th century. Initial settlers in farmer republic style 
are often content to name their farm after some feature until elites start their looming and towering and have settlements specifically under their control and named after them. The earlier settlements are thought to be the Ham-type names, and we have some of those in our area too, like Brockhampton. There are very similar principles in northern and eastern England. It's just that the impact of the Danish invasions makes the words slightly different. So, Thorpe and B, for example. The very earliest settlement names in the old Dane law are thought to be what are called Grimston hybrids. So those are names which combine Viking and English elements. So Grimmer was a Viking name and Ton, as you know, settlement. So Grimston is a hybrid. So let's look at the settlement in South Oxfordshire and see what drove it and what settlement names can tell us about how the landscape framed and directed settlement. Landscape, of course, being one of my stated objectives for this series. If the Inga and Ham sites may be earlier than others, Watlington situation suggests another reason for early existence, which is quite simply those areas which are most attractive for agriculture and, you know, staying alive. There are a few considerations for this, and the presence of water is one. The fertility of the soil is another, and how easy it was to work the soil is a further one, not quite the same as fertility. So, settling on the River Thames, such as Dorchester, Benchon and Goring, are obvious places if you're going to start. But the bottom of the Chiltern Scarp is another favoured area for early settlement. Along there at the bottom of the Scarp, you see many place names that suggest running water. So Uelm, that means copious spring. And there might well have been a Roman shrine there as well, actually. The well element in Brightwell and Britwell, that means a spring. Just an ordinary two-bit spring without the copious bit, presumably. Not sure what the citizens of Uelm had done to deserve the copious thing. In fact, while we're talking of springs, the maps I have posted in said slides and PDF show a nice line of settlements that hug the foot of the scarp, because this is the spring line, where the rain has soaked through the chalk of the hills, finally then got down to meet an impermeable layer of rock and been squeezed out from the ground in the form of a spring. It's worth noting that there is another reason why the spring line villages may be the earliest settlements, because along the bottom of the scarp, old watercourses had left a strip of easy-to-work, fertile, green sand soil, in between the variously infertile clay-cap chalk uplands of the Chilterns and the quaggy, heavy clay of the Oxford Vale. Now, when you're using a light scratch plough, which is basically like dragging a strick through the earth, that makes a big difference. So, Brockhampton is again one of those settlements further into the Vale. The Brock element suggests a muddy stream rather than a spring, and it reflects the fact that Brockhampton is on low-lying clay land. The Galt clay on which it sits is fertile enough, but it is jolly hard to work. In a future episode, we'll come to the agricultural revolution, well, an agricultural revolution, with the mould, board, heavy plough. And once that's arrived, then settlement on the heavy clay soils will increase. The Vale also had climate advantages of the hills. The period 400 to 1000 is a relatively cool period climactically, and therefore the average temperature difference between the lowland and the upland could have been very significant, maybe 3 degrees on average. That has an impact. And anyway, everyone loves the 3 degrees. So, 
it took a little more time, say after 7 or 800, to establish permanent settlements in the hills from the settlements of the plains. Also in the hills, as we have mentioned, water is much more difficult to access because there are no running streams, and place names demonstrate that. So names denoting running water disappear, and instead you get water place names like Mungewell, Homer, Kidmore, Uxmore. These words are based on the word mere or pond. Or you get just Turville, which just means dry, dry town. In the hills, as I say, you depended on the much less reliable clay ponds for your water. The Chiltern Hills are settled later, therefore, for the lack of water and also the land was less fertile and again the lack of fertility is reflected in some of the place names. In the fertile Oxfordshire Vale, then, we have many habitive-type names suggesting settlements and people because that's a great place to live. But now if we go into the hills, everything's a bit different. The place names become dominated by topography. There are no Don names in the Chilterns. I'm very sorry to say Don meaning a round-shaped hill, as in Hambledon in Hampshire. What we have here are Coombs, as in Swinkham, Huntercombe, Watcombe. A Coombe specifically means a rounded, bowl-shaped valley. In common with the idea that the British presence survived longer in the Chilterns, Coombe is a Brythonic loanword, and the Denu in many villages up there, like Assenden, Harpsden, Ipsden, reflect a long, narrow valley rather than a round one, which is again very typical of the Chilterns. Then there are Aura place names. Words with the Aura root in them may be my favourite place name of all time. They mean, and I quote, you ready for this? Flat-topped ridge with a convex shoulder used as a visual signpost. Did you get that? Aura means flat top ridge with a convex shoulder used as a visual signpost. By heck, all that from three letters. Basically, these are hills which have a sort of ridge and then a path cut through the side of them, forming a sort of shoulder. Now look me in the eyes and tell me you just don't love that. There are two of the aforementioned Aura place names on the Icknield Way, so there's Lukna and Chinna. And then there's one in the hills at a place called Stoner. Obviously, sometimes names were copied from the natives without understanding what they meant. So my very favourite example of this comes from far away Nottinghamshire, Breeden on the Hill, which has Celtic, Old English and Modern English name for a hill. So it's Hill Hill on the Hill. There's a picture of Breeden on the Hill on the slides, which will help you guess wildly how it acquired this name. In said slides and maps, you'll also see that the uplands have fielden names in places such as Nuffield. Now, you might think that the field bit suggests arable farming, but actually the word normally means a rather infertile clearing and is therefore associated with rough pasture land. So Rotherfield is a good example. It means field for cattle. Nuffield means tough grass. Binfield means bent grass. Given all of this, it seems likely that the Britons may therefore have survived without much bother from new arrivals for rather longer in the more inhospitable and broken uplands. The Chiltern Hills extend beyond Oxfordshire, running northwards in a sort of arc to the northwest of modern Greater London. They were very lightly settled, and in some places not settled at all. When we get to doomsday in hundreds of years, some of them are completely unsettled, 
and bring their farm workers in from outside. Anglo-Saxon elite valued hunting every bit as much as the next man, and the wild upland areas may have actively been kept clear for hunting. So, a couple of the place names out there, Huntercombe, that means Valley of Hunters, Swinkham means Valley of the Pigs, maybe for hunting, maybe for agriculture. There is a theory, in fact, that the Chiltern survived as a British enclave until quite late, late 6th century, possibly early 7th century. To illustrate that, and for the next stage in the story, we should refer to a document called the Hybel Tridage. It's actually the Tribal Hydage, but it is impossible not to spoonerise the Tribal Hydage. Although the document only survives in much later versions, the original probably dates from the 7th or 8th centuries. In the pantheon of fascinating English historical documents, forget your Magna Cartas, sure to your treaties of Wedmore, and a plague on your bills of rights. For number one on the list, head over to the tribal hydage, and the record it leaves of some of the tribes who had built a recognisable identity and territory by the 8th century. Among the big boys of the Mercians and the West Saxons are the tribes known in technical parlance as the Tiddlers, and among the Tiddlers are the Chiltern Sater, the people of the Chilterns. So maybe if things had been different, we'd have had a Chiltern set, just like we have a Somerset. But I suspect the resources of the Chiltern uplands were far too valuable to the people of the plains, and so the Chilterns would be split up and belong to shires that were defined by settlement in the plains. There are, incidentally, other regions where a people emerge with the suffix Sater. So, there's the Magan Sater in Herefordshire, the Somerset Sater in Somerset, the Elmet Sater in Yorkshire, and the Grantus Sater in Cambridgeshire. All of these are accorded a lesser status in the tribal hydage, and it is thought that they represent pockets of late Romano-British survival. This varied landscape has an impact on political landholding patterns, so farming in medieval and early modern England is almost uniformly subsistence farming, so where to survive, your peasants' first priority was to produce exactly what they needed to live. You're not producing for a market. And so access to as many different types of resource was required because you couldn't get stuff from outside. So you needed a bit of everything. Land suitable for the plough, for arable. Pasture land to feed your livestock. Livestock for meat, wool and hides for clothes and so on. But also manure to fertilise your arable land. But don't write off the less fertile uplands because you needed them as well. They provided woodland for all manner of things, building materials and making things like hurdles and fencing, or for fuel, wood to burn for heat. And they provided pasture. Now, South Oxfordshire was dominated in the 8th century by a vast royal estate centred on Benson, which reached all the way into the Chilterns and down the dip slope to Henley. It was broken up over time, a process we will describe in a much later episode, but parish structures tended to be in strips, strips that combined hill and vale. Because if you just have vale land, it would be a dreadful shame to convert prime arable land to woodland or pasture land, when less fertile land would do just as well, and less fertile land was available, not far away, in the Chiltern Hills. So, your parish settlement is designed in such a way as to include both vale 
and upland. As an example, here is a 996 chart from the area which described the Benson estate for a land grant and, as all charters do, described its boundaries. And then the charter says for a specific piece of land, these are the bounds of the wood that belong to the land. The charter then goes on to describe the borders of a piece of unconnected land miles away in the Chilterns, which are all woods up there in the hills, and they would now belong to the lowland Benson estate. This little example helps demonstrate a couple of points. That estates need all kinds of resources, so you couldn't just nip down to the supermarket, buy yourself some French beans transported out of season all the way from Kenya. You were dependent on your landscape, and that must be sufficient unto your day. And the charter demonstrates that the Anglo-Saxon landscape was not teeming with wildwood, though Ferdus 996 is very much towards the back end of the period. They needed that wood from the uplands. They didn't have it down in the Vale anymore. So lowland areas needed to be allocated wildwood in the uplands. This flies in the idea that wildwood had reclaimed the land after the Romans left, but Rackham exploded that idea a while ago anyway, it has to be said, so that's gone. Finally, the Charter assumes the existence of common rights, because folks from Benson Estate would need to be able to get to that bit of woodland miles away, and they would need rights of access over trackways to get there. So I could warble on all day about landscape features, but I imagine you'd start throwing things, and possibly you already are. So just a few words then on the other main feature of the countryside, which are, of course, the fields. Can't do without fields. It is worth saying at this point that almost every statement that talks in generalities about the English countryside is probably hogwash, because there is so much regional variation going on. And to illustrate this, I'm going to take you to beautiful Dartmoor, down in Devon in the southwest of England. In Dartmoor, there are a rather remarkable set of field structures, long and thin. They're called reeves, and they parceled out units of land of 10-mile units in a very regimented, organised way. Survivals of the same system have been found in several places of lowland England. These structures are prehistoric. It's evidence of massive planning on a national scale, really early, before the days of national government and bureaucracy and all that. Most of the field structures were probably laid down before the Bronze Age, and they are similar in spirit to the most regimented of all, the regimented rotten Romans. Since I have mentioned the Romans, let me tell you that they had a system of centuriation fields. Centuriation fields are the equivalent of 775 square yards, obviously. They were laid north to south, usually, and marched across continental countrysides, irrespective of topography. They really were a weird lot, the Romans. Straight roads, rectangular fields, really, they need to lighten up. As it happens, they did not import the field approach much into England. So, you know, I tell you that just for your general information and all. Although there are some arguments that there could have been some centuration fields in various locations. But mostly, the Anglo-Saxons would have encountered the traditional Celtic field. These tend towards the small and square, often surrounded by quite high banks of earth and or hedges. But, generalisation alert, the topography would often define the shape. But the basic squareness is important because it reflected the plough of those earlier days of the 6th and 7th centuries, which was your basic ard plough, which is essentially a stick. So it's sometimes called a scratch plough. 
The Ard plough essentially scores a series of lines across the field, leaving undisturbed soil between the shallow troughs so created. So the farmer would plough both ways, crossways. This has a few consequences. The Ard plough doesn't dig very deep. You're not using a big team of oxen thereby, so you get the square fields. You don't need big turning areas or the gores and headlands of the later field systems. But you are also rather restricted to the kind of soil that you can plough with your stick, relatively light loamy soils of the lowlands, because the scratch plough finds heavy soils terribly hard. I think I probably need to point out that was a joke. I need to point it out because otherwise I suspect you might not recognise it as such. That then seems a reasonable place to leave our very first Anglo-Saxon settlers establishing themselves on the Oxfordshire Vale, adopting the small square Celtic fields, intermarrying and working with or beating up the local Britons, we know not which, beginning to make contact and take part in some argy-bargy with other groups as well, living in small isolated farms and settlements, single families and their households, which we'll come to in the future. Possibly, maybe, perhaps, reaching up into the Chiltern Hills to make use of their resources, grazing for livestock, wood for charcoal, building materials and fencing. Next time we'll look at the life on the Big Benson Estate, the formation of the Anglo-Saxon Shears, estates and tribal areas. It will be very exciting, let me tell you. Until then, I hope you're enjoying the Anglo-Saxon series Reborn, revived in series two. Do leave a comment on your podcatcher of choice, as and if it allows you to, or come to the Facebook site and website to tell me what you think. And then, until next time, good luck everyone, the very best actually, and have a fantastic week. I am sure you deserve it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.